Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Something's gone very wrong at Wirecard, a German digital payments firm. A couple billion dollars seem to be missing. The warning signs were there, in particular short sellers betting big against it. But only now are the details spilling out. And a study of African football suggests that when a country's national team wins a big match, national unity and trust among ethnic groups goes up. The feeling seems to have lasting effects, too. Sometimes violence is measurably down even months later. First up, though. In Afghanistan, there are some signs of progress towards a longed-for and elusive peace. The Afghan government and Taliban militants are set to begin peace talks in Qatar as early as this month. The way to negotiations was paved in February, when America and the Taliban signed a peace agreement with the goal of a near-total withdrawal of American troops. Speaking at the Aspen Security Forum earlier this month, American General Kenneth F. McKenzie expressed cautious optimism. So I think the government of Afghanistan is poised to begin those intra-Afghan negotiations. That is going to be a key event. That's, you know, days in the future. And that's going to be a hinge moment, I think, in the future of Afghanistan. But the agreement had some conditions that are still proving tricky. The difficulties have arisen really because the details of those conditions were vague in the original U.S. deal. Ben Farmer writes about Afghanistan for The Economist. So the first one was a prisoner swap. And the idea was that 5,000 Taliban prisoners who are currently held by the Afghan government would be released. And in return, the Taliban would free 1,000 Afghan government prisoners. Those are largely soldiers and policemen who are held by the militants. But the Afghan government's been very reluctant to release all of these prisoners. It sees them as a very big bargaining chip. And it doesn't see why it should give them all up in advance of the talks. And indeed, from the original text of the deal. It wasn't clear that they did have to give them all up at once. But the Taliban have been unwilling to move on this, and they've said that talks will not start until all 5,000 of their men have been freed. It's taken months and months to resolve that, but we're quite close to that now. I think there's a few hundred left. I'm told that the difficulty is that probably a couple of hundred of those are really quite hardcore jihadists. They've been convicted of some terrible crimes, And the Afghan government really doesn't want to release them. And indeed, the international community doesn't want them to be freed either. So that's the last stumbling point on those prisoners. But I don't think it's necessarily a showstopper. And has that been the only sticking point in the agreement? The other thing that's been difficult to get these talks underway is the Afghan government wanted a reduction in violence. They want the Taliban to show that they're serious, that they're committed to talking rather than fighting. The Taliban have not been that keen on doing that. 
Violence is their biggest leverage in this whole system. The Taliban are only at the negotiating table because they've conducted a very ruthless, very bloody insurgency campaign, which has gone on for more than 15 years now. But there was a breakthrough at the end of Ramadan. When that ended last month, the number of attacks did go down enough for the Afghan government to acknowledge that an effort had been made. So once we get these prisoners swapped, it looks like talks may well be able to begin. And how does all of this intersect with the, the withdrawal of American troops? What's, what has to happen uh, with the talks before uh, U.S. troops actually get out? Well, when uh, America signed the deal in Doha back in February, they said that they would pull out over the next 14 months. They've gone from about 14,000 troops to about 8,500. So really, they've got nine and a half months to complete the rest of their withdrawal. But what the conditions are on that in the deal are very, very vague. So we don't know, for example, what the Americans will do if talks break down or if violence escalates. Will they halt their withdrawal? Will they, if needs be, will they send more troops back? The presumption seems to be that if these talks go badly wrong or very, very slowly, then America will probably stop its troop withdrawal. But I think probably beyond the text of the uh, deal, The biggest factor which will decide what the Americans do will be what happens in the American election. Uh, Mr. Trump is very, very keen to get out of Afghanistan. He's talked about getting out of these endless wars. And so if the Afghan withdrawal becomes an election issue, it could well mean that uh, he's very keen to get out come what may. So I think the electoral calculus will have a huge effect on this. And so what is the the long-term picture here? What does each side of this want in, in the long run? Well, we've been talking about an Afghan peace process for so long that you'd think that we knew what both sides wanted. But it's far from clear. Now, going to the Taliban first, they've let very little out about what they actually want, how the country will be run, what vision for people's rights they they see, and so on. And that's really a big worry for a lot of people who have terrible memories of how the Taliban ran the government in the 1990s. As you'll recall, it was a very strict Islamic government. Women were denied rights. They were denied education. They were denied a chance to work. And men were made to grow beards. Television, music, things like that were outlawed. So any sense that there is going to be a return to that would horrify lots of Afghans and lots of people in the international community. All the Taliban have said is they want to have a government which is founded on Islamic principles. And they say that... Also, people's rights will be uh, protected, but under Islam. And what about on the Afghan government side? Again, they've been very vague. Ashraf Ghani, the president, he gave a talk in Washington earlier this month, and he said that the uh, Afghanistan is going to be a sovereign, democratic, united republic. But what that means in terms of the system of government is not clear. And both these things are going to be have to be hammered out over what I suspect will be months and months and months. And, and what is the, the relationship between the Afghan government and the Taliban then, besides uh, trying to play a bit of hardball? The relationship is very, very difficult. These are arch enemies, deadly enemies. They are talking at the moment, and they're both saying that they wish to talk. But then with the other hand, they are killing each other in very large numbers. Even with the reduction in violence, we're still talking about potentially hundreds of people dying every week even. I mean, you really are talking about 
a negotiation which is going on in the teeth of appalling bloodshed. And, and the peace process itself, is it likely to your mind to, uh, to, to be aimed at real results, or do you think it's just kind of been hastily arranged to cover the fact that the, the, the American troops want out? I think probably the answer is both. I think that there is no doubt that Mr. Trump wants to leave. He's sort of railed against Barack Obama's endless wars. He's complained that America has become the world's policeman. And he, he really has told his support base that one of his pledges is that he will bring troops home from these endless wars. But at the same time, I don't know anyone really who thinks that there is a sensible alternative to the, the Afghan situation which is not based on some kind of talks. So he may want to get out, but that doesn't mean the talks aren't genuine and aren't really seen as the only way to get out. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 50% off your first 12 weeks, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Wirecard is changing the way people pay, today and tomorrow. For more than a decade, Wirecard had been the darling of Germany's startup scene and one of Europe's most valuable tech companies. Are you ready for the future of payment? But now it's not just the future of payment, but the future of Wirecard itself that's in doubt. Last week, the fintech company admitted that more than $2 billion are missing from its accounts, and that the money probably never existed. The company's boss, Marcus Braun, was arrested on Monday. Today, shares in the company are trading at less than a fifth of their value from last week. Wirecard's swift downfall took many, but not all, by surprise. The details of just what happened remain murky, but the scandal has already rocked the company's partners and dented Germany's reputation for financial due diligence. Wirecard is one of the 30 biggest companies um, in Germany. And it's basically responsible or it takes care of electronic payments between a trader and a customer. So it provides the technology to make such a payment possible. Wendelin von Bredo is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent and is based in Berlin. Wirecard is one of the biggest European companies handling such payments, and it was until recently seen as a potential consolidator. But now, of course, the best they can hope for is to be taken over by one of their rivals. And what is it that's that's gone wrong at the company? So definitely some type of fraud happened, but we don't know yet what kind of fraud. Um, What we know is that about 2 billion euros are missing. The company claimed that this money was held in an account in the Philippines, but now it suddenly says, well, it probably never existed. The question is, first of all, who did it? And we don't know yet. And then, of course, who knew about it? Uh, And that concerns specifically the CEO of the company, 
who um, has been taken into custody in Germany and now released on bail. Um, and he said until now um, that he didn't know anything about it, that he's innocent. But the story goes that there had been some some red flags, in, in particular from, from whistleblowers. Yes, there have been uh, quite a lot of red flags, really, and it's been going on for months, if not years. It's really a story the Financial Times, in a way, owns, because they had um, uh, reporters looking into Wirecard for a long time and saying something is fishy about the company. And the company not only vigorously defended itself and said, no, 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 that's all made up. And maybe even the journalists are in cahoots with short sellers. Um, but it even went as far as suing the, the journalists, um, um, alleging that they were producing fake news about Wirecard. And so what role were the short sellers playing here? Short sellers borrow shares and sell them, hoping to buy them back for less in the future. So they are, um, in a way, counting on stocks to go down. That's that's what shorting is all about. And they are quite a niche, you know, within the world of finance. But they play an incredibly useful role because you can see them a little bit like a mix of forensic accountants and investigative journalists. I mean, they look at companies very closely and they sniff out stuff that is going wrong but their life is often made difficult because people see them as these speculators on a company's misfortune. And certainly in Germany, they have a bad reputation. And they seemingly foresaw misfortune at Wirecard. Yes. So short sellers, a number of short sellers had been on, on Wirecard's case. They lost quite a lot of money with Wirecard because Wirecard in between sort of went up quite a bit. But um Short sellers were so much on Wirecard's case that, again, the Germans trying to back up their much-praised um, startup banned short selling for two months last year. And that's also something that has not happened before. But it seems as if all of the signs were there. There was the investigative journalism, the, the short sellers picked up on all this, there was a whistleblower. How is it that this could have carried on for as long as it seems to have done? I think one important reason is that Germany was so proud of this fintech company because Germans are good at making machines and tools, but they are not good at technology. They only really have one big successful technology company, that's SAP. And everybody was really proud to have this other startup, Wirecard. And the other is that most people don't completely understand what Wirecard is actually doing. It is very complicated. The technology they use is apparently very sophisticated and parts very good, but it's also quite hard to understand. So the combination of trying to protect the precious startup and also not really understanding what they do, I think explains quite a bit of why it went on for such a long time. And so what do you think the knock-on effects for for the German financial system more generally will be, known as it is for, for due diligence, for financial probity, for due care? Oh, oh, this is a big deal. I mean, Wirecard is the biggest scandal in post-war history. I mean, I think one of the biggest financial scandals ever in Germany. And it will have consequences. First of all, there's reputational damage. So Finanzplatz Germany has definitely, or Frankfurt, because that's really the financial center, has definitely suffered. Frankfurt's efforts to lure financial talent and financial institutions away from London post-Brexit 
will certainly um, has has been damaged or has suffered with with all this. But I think there will probably be a big reform of financial regulation. I mean, there are now calls for one financial regulator overseeing all financial institutions. I mean, that's one possible outcome because BaFin, the regulator here, is at least theoretically only responsible for Wirecard Bank, so only for their bank branch, not for the entire company. So that's actually also now part of their defense a little bit. And can you believe it? The rest of Wirecard was, in theory, regulated by the Bavarian, by the local upper Bavarian government. And of course, they had no idea what they were doing. So I think some kind of reckoning is on the cards. And and I think German financial regulation will change uh, as a consequence of Wirecard. Wendelin, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Jason. In 2005, Ivory Coast's football team made it to the finals of the World Cup for the first time after their rivals Cameroon lost their qualifying match. It was a magnificent moment for a country that was embroiled in a devastating civil war. In an interview broadcast repeatedly across the country, the team's captain, Didier Drogba, asked the team to kneel and addressed the nation. We proved today that all Ivorians can coexist and play together, he said. Please lay down your weapons and hold elections. Soon after, the warring parties began talks. Less than two years later, a peace agreement was signed. According to a new study looking at African countries, the outcomes of important football matches can have a pretty dramatic effect on national unity and on people's trust in their fellow citizens. Kinley Salmon is our Africa correspondent. This was a study from the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile, or at least led by them. And they were looking at this hypothesis of whether sport can have a kind of positive impact on national unity and trust. And so they looked at how Africans identified themselves, whether they focused more on their national identity or more on their ethnic identity. And they looked at this just before and after important matches by the national football team. And so what did they find? So they found that after their national football team had won, people were 37% less likely to identify primarily with their ethnic group and found kind of greater connection to their national identity. And they also found that they were about 30% more likely to trust other ethnicities compared to when they were interviewed just before a game. Interestingly, that researchers found that this was driven basically entirely by national team victories, whereas defeats didn't seem to reduce people's sense of identification with the nation. So there's only upside, which was good to see. And so why do they reckon that is? One of the possible reasons for this is something of a role model effect, uh, where the members of the national football team themselves hail from diverse corners of the country. Mr. Drogba, in the Ivory Coast case, in fact, said exactly that. He said the teams from the north, south and centre, as well as the west of the Ivory Coast. And the researchers find that this diversity actually makes the effect of a victory even stronger when it comes to building trust among the nation. But is that not part of a, a broader pattern where everybody in the country feels generally better about everything in the country? It's it's politics, it's people, it's team, what have you? 
Uh, well, the study actually also looked at that. Uh, they were curious whether this was just some sort of post-match euphoria that, that made people excited in general. But they found that incumbent politicians, for example, didn't get any bounce in approval after a win. And they also didn't see people being any more optimistic about the state of the economy. But they did, I think, very strikingly find that victories, in fact, led to less violence in the country. And they looked, for example, at countries that narrowly qualified for the African Cup of Nations and compared them with countries that just missed out on that tournament. And quite impressively, they found that countries that had just snuck in experienced about 10% less conflict in the next six months than those that had just missed out. Quite a significant finding. So do you think there's a, there's a more general connection there between sports success and, and, and conflict? Well, it's possible, but it's notable that in this study, which was just on football, that the results only held in quite high-stakes matches. You know, the bigger the match, the bigger the boost to national solidarity and to trust. But with friendly games between nations, there wasn't any effect found. And of course, we also need to keep in mind that while these effects were shown to exist for six months when it came to a reduction in violence, we don't know if they will continue you know, much longer beyond that. Even in the Ivory Coast, a civil war restarted in 2010, although Calm, of course, did return in 2011 after Mr. Drogba and, and of course, many others appealed for peace once again. Kinley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.